0: To us, just to have them in our thoughts and minds. I would love for you to try to commit these to memory, and uh, they say something about what we're doing in the church and what our purposes are that I think it's important for all of us to, to know and be aware of together. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, And to prayer. So, as we jump in this morning, uh, I want to remind you of some things that we talked about last week from Acts chapter 8, the story of of Stephen and the first persecution that the church underwent there. And uh, the first point I would like to say is this world may throw its very worst at you, but in the end, it is the purposes of God that will prevail. That's a lesson we all need to remember, because as the church is persecuted, it goes from Judea, or from Jerusalem out to all of Judea and Samaria along the coast. It just begins to explode. Uh, the Roman Empire and, and the Jewish leadership, they are doing their very best to squelch this thing, and it just takes off like wildfire. It is the, it is the purposes of God in the end that are going to prevail. And second, the young church is beginning to discover that the gospel is for everyone, not just certain people, not just certain elect people because of uh, the way they were raised or because of their ethnicity or their race. The gospel is for everyone. And so that we, we trace this spreading out from Jerusalem to uh, these villages in Samaria. Uh, even a magician, uh, a magic worker who becomes a Christian and the apostles come, and the Holy Spirit is received, and they go about preaching in Samaria now, these people who were culturally outsiders and uh, viewed with a lot of discrimination. And then uh, this Ethiopian eunuch who uh, Philip is sent to, and they have a one-on-one Bible study basically in a chariot, and uh, the gospel is for him too, and he's baptized into Christ. And so we begin to see this Ripple out from Jerusalem. And number three, the point I made is, if you want to see God's Spirit at work, if you want to discover the power of the Holy Spirit, invest in the mission of God. We are all called to be missionaries, whether we're doing it in Eugene, Oregon, or Tanzania, East Africa. As you invest... In God's mission, you'll get to be close friends with His Holy Spirit. All right, so let's jump into chapter 9. Interesting text today. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So we've already noted this rapid progression in Saul from the guy holding coats at Stephen's death, uh, his stoning, to actively hunting down Christians and uh, throwing them into prison. And now Saul, the Christian hunter, hits the road, to pursue these disciples that are spreading out, escaping persecution, and following them where they're taking the gospel, all of these different places. So they end up on the road to Damascus. You see, Saul, he's a zealot. He's done listening. He's not a reasonable person. The disruption and the threat that Jesus represents is just too great to abide. And in Saul's mind, those who belong to the way are a cancer that needs to be eradicated. So his resolve is set, and he even goes to get special permission and letters from the high priest to these various synagogues as he is ready to go out from Jerusalem and to do violence. So Damascus is an important city, about 135 miles north-northeast of Jerusalem. It's the first city outside the land of Israel to be noted as having Christians. Damascus was an important commercial center on the way between Egypt and Mesopotamia, and it did have a substantial Jewish population there. So Saul either heard reports of Christian activity there, or he knew that this would likely be a place where these Jesus followers would go to. So as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. He replied, now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. What would it be like in that moment to suddenly realize that you had been playing for the wrong team all along? So maybe I will talk a minute about football. What if you were a Beavers fan and you realize that the Ducks were the better team all along, and you really should have been rooting for them. It's a whole lot bigger than that. This is a religious zeal that Saul has that has become murderous. He is that passionate about it. And in a moment he realizes that the God he has been seeking his entire life with his entire heart, mind, soul, and strength, he finds out that that is the God he has, in fact, been opposing. And notice Jesus' words to him. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? See, that's significant. Because Jesus is together with his church, and the church is suffering. When disciples of Jesus Christ suffer, Jesus suffers together with them. So this is the third time now that we have Jesus appearing in Acts. First is in chapter 1, post-resurrection, where he gives them the promise of the Holy Spirit to come. And he gives the disciples a mission, Uh, chapter 1, verse 8, if you want to look. Then Jesus reveals himself, we read in chapter 8, where Stephen sees Jesus not sitting at the throne of God, but standing at the throne of God, watching everything going on. And now this third appearance. We heard Jonathan read a scripture from 1 Corinthians, last of all. He appeared to me as one untimely born, one who's born out of difficulty and strife. And that is the story before us this morning. So Jesus, again, He's not indifferent. He's not on a cloud and pie in the sky by and by. He is actively involved in the life of His church to the point when someone hurts the church, you are harming Christ. So he comes, and don't miss that Jesus is protecting us. Saul, the hunter of Christians, finds himself hunted by Jesus Christ. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they didn't see anyone. So Saul's traveling companions who were with him on the road, they could see light, and they could hear sound, and could attest to that something was happening. There was an event taking place, even though the full significance of what was happening in this divine appearance, appearance, it was not fully revealed to them. But Saul, he got up from the ground. But when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. He did not eat or drink anything. So Saul, he's struck blind, uh, and he has to be helped, led by the hand, the rest of the way into Damascus, however far along he was in that 135-mile journey. And then when he gets there, he refuses food or drink. Have you ever had something so traumatic happen in your life that you refuse to eat or drink anything? Maybe some of you have. It's not a normal thing. Not for me. I don't like skipping food and drink, typically. So this event of Christ's direct intervention and this event here with Saul and Christ appearing to him I just need to say, too, that uh, this is a major turning point in the book of Acts. And uh, this whole conversion of Saul is mentioned three different times, this time in the third person, and later on it's first person from Saul, Paul himself, where he talks about that three times in Acts, and then we have that mentioned in his uh, epistles, the letters that he wrote as well. Because this is a turning point where God… Is not just for the Jews, but God is for everyone. And the mission extends to the Gentiles. So Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing, it said. He had been struck blind. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias, and the Lord called to him in a vision Ananias! Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. So Jesus, he's not just talking to Saul. Saul. But he's giving very specific instructions to one of his disciples on where to find Saul and what to do with him after he's found. So Jesus is hearing Saul's prayers, and he also is giving a specific vision to Saul of what is going to take place and happen in his future. So God doesn't only work in Saul, Jesus is not only working with Saul, he's working with Um, Ananias for this thing to happen. So, he's on both sides of of what's taking place. Jesus is at work. We'll notice this again uh, with Peter and Cornelius, that instant that Jesus Himself is orchestrating. I would like to have specific instructions like this. I feel like I would like house addresses. I would like exactly what… and, and to know with confidence uh, uh, what, what God is saying in my life through the Spirit. And so, I think that this speaks something to maybe the character of this disciple. And, and it also speaks, I think, to the special interest of the Lord in what's taking place there uh, in, in, in the conversion of Saul. But, you know, Ananias didn't like everything he heard. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm that he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. So he's trying to clarify these instructions because they don't make sense to him. He doesn't understand them. He knows about Saul He knows why he's come there to Damascus. Saul's a bad dude. He's a bad dude who can't be reasoned with, and he's come to do evil things. But the Lord told Ananias, Go! This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer For my name. So Jesus has a plan for Saul, and no one was expecting what Jesus was doing. Ananias, he he obeys, he listens at this point. Uh, Just this is this is a radical intervention of Jesus Christ. Into our reality and our day to day life after, after the resurrection. No one is expecting this. Saul was not expecting this. The traveling companions with Saul were not expecting this and didn't fully understand what was happening. Ananias did not expect this. The church was not asking God for this. Oh, please, Lord, take this hunter of Christians and let them be ours. We have no record of that being prayed, and especially no one expected this among the Jewish leadership. They had a vision of small… of small. (laughs) They had a vision of Saul as an instrument, uh, a weapon to be used against these disciples. Saul was their means of smiting Christians, Saul the smiter of Christians. So all that to say, Jesus has a vision, and he has a plan of how he's going to use this man's life. Can you get that? And I would like to tell you that Jesus has a vision and a plan for how he wants to use your life as well. He has a dream for you. He has a vision of you that the people around you may not fully see or understand, just like Paul's traveling companions didn't see the fullness of that revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus holds a vision for the man or woman that you can become in him when you can't even imagine it or see it in yourself. Saul didn't have plans i becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ. Jesus holds a vision of you that maybe even people in the church don't expect or fully recognize or appreciate or understand. Ananias couldn't see that. He had to question, but he is obedient. He goes, we'll read, he goes to Jerusalem and the disciples there won't, they're afraid of him. They won't have anything to do with Saul. But Barnabas steps in. Jesus holds a vision of you and the ways that He wants to bless and use you that maybe even people in the church don't fully see or understand. And finally, He holds a vision of you. It'll shock the world. The world may not like it. It might set you against culture in some ways. It may set you up for some difficulty that you have to experience. But He holds a vision of you that is shockingly beautiful. So, I would ask this question. What is Jesus' dream for the person you can become? What what does He want from your life? Is that a question you've asked and contemplated? Probably in fits and spurts it comes to us. We don't think this way typically on a regular basis, and that's why we have to be reminded, because a lot of times the things that we profess to be about and we want to be about, we get out of alignment with that, and we get caught up in distractions and mundane things and things that are really not going the direction that we have professed we want for our life. What is Jesus' dream for the person that you can become? Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, whom appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So even though Ananias doesn't fully understand what Jesus is up to, he is obedient. To what Jesus tells him to do. He does what he's told. And more than this, do you notice how he addresses Saul? Because of the word of Jesus Christ, he calls Saul brother. He's willing to accept Saul as his brother. And I think that Ananias' humble obedience through the laying on of hands on Saul and filling, and um, Saul's being filled with the Holy Spirit so that uh, his eyesight is restored, I think there's great significance there. If you can listen like Ananias, if you can obey like Ananias, the Lord will use you in His mission. There's no doubt about it. Immediately, something like scales fail from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. So it's interesting, once again in Acts, we find an association between the Holy Spirit and baptism. You see, Saul hasn't had anything to eat or drink for three days. But in that moment, there's nothing more important to him than being baptized into Jesus Christ. Food and drink can wait. There's something bigger going on here. Saul sent, spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those, all those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the, the man who was raised in... Cav, raising cav, raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name and hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ and after many days had gone by the Jews conspired to kill him but Saul learned of their plan day at night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. Uh, reminds me, uh, in a way, of uh, 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 the story of Moses, a little baby being put in a basket and delivered. So there's great irony at work in what's taking place with Saul. Saul intended to arrest Christians in Damascus, and Damascus becomes the first place instead where he preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the irony goes even deeper than this, because Saul, the hunter of Christians, is captured by Jesus and then himself finds himself hunted and persecuted by the same Jews that he used to represent. They're after him now. So when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. I think any church that is under persecution knows that you have to be careful and thoughtful in the ways that you invite people into the community. And I don't fault these disciples for being cautious. My guess is in this group, the church is still small enough at this point, that some in that group had directly experienced or knew firsthand people who had been persecuted by Saul himself. So how quickly would you take in someone who had harmed you or harmed someone that you loved? But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. Thank the Lord for his disciples with compassionate hearts, who have a discerning heart, who are willing to risk their reputations to help strangers lose their strangeness and to help outsiders become insiders. That's an important work. Helping outsiders to become insiders. Who's doing that work here in this church? If you're not involved in that, you should be. Helping strangers lose their strangeness. Helping those who are outside of us, not known to us. Inviting them into what we are about and what we're doing here in this place. Helping them connect in relationship. Helping encourage them helping them find a home here. That is the work that we're called to do as the church, and if you're not involved in that, you should be, and you know that. We all know that there are a lot of things in this world that would conspire to separate us from each other, that would cause us to fear and mistrust each other, To say, "Uh uh-uh, no thank you, you stay over there, I'll stay over here. Uh, This is a church for people like us and not for you. There's plenty in this world that will try to push in that direction. But Jesus, Jesus has a vision for each one of us, and He has a vision for this church that's big enough and strong enough to hold it all together. So, I'm aware, this is just an aside, this is just Calvin now, I'm aware of a pretty broad spectrum of people's thoughts and opinions in this room, and uh, political leanings, where we are as a church, uh, comfortable with where we're at. Desiring more, uh, there are things that we need to change. How do, we, how do we get there in a responsible way? People who feel discouraged, people who are very encouraged, we're all over the place. And there's so much in this world that will say, you can't hold it all together. You're walking on a knife's edge. And any little mistake, you there are people out of here. I've had it. We're gone. But if we're following Jesus Christ and being led by the Holy Spirit, we're not on a knife's edge. There's plenty of room there. We can be dancing there. He's going to hold us all together. He's going to get us where we need to be going. Do you hold a vision for the church of Jesus Christ about what we can become when we learn to love each other and do this together? Because Jesus has a dream for us. Individually and us collectively, he has a dream for us. So Barnabas, he told them how Saul, on his journey, had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Barnabas, whose name… He's Joseph, but he's given this name by the apostles, son of encouragement. He's in the encouragement business again. He's risking his reputation, taking a chance on Saul. Saul because Barnabas has faith big enough to know that Jesus Christ can change people's hearts. He can turn a hunter of Christians into God's instruments, instrument to reach the Gentile peoples. And just like Saul, Jesus has a vision of you that's bigger than your current circumstances, bigger than your current reality, Jesus holds a vision of you that's bigger than your mistakes, it's bigger than your sins, it's bigger than shame you maybe feel, I'm not worthy, who am I to have an idea like this or to run this or whatever? Jesus has a dream of you that's big enough. So here's something I would like you to do, and this may sound a little bit weird, but we do this in faith. I'd like you to invite you at least to go home, and when you have a quiet moment, if you can find a quiet moment, uh, maybe in the bathroom. Look, this is not sounding very good as I explain this. All right. Look at yourself in the mirror. I want you to go home and look at yourself in the mirror, and you're not looking at yourself in the mirror to notice wrinkles or pimples, or look for hairs that are sprouting where hairs should not be sprouting, or to lament where hairs are no longer growing where they used to grow. That's not what I'm asking you to do. I want you to hold your own gaze. Look deeply into your own eyes and just do that for a solid minute. One minute looking deeply into your own eyes in the mirror. And after a minute of silence and a minute staring at yourself, I want you to pray this out loud. Jesus, what is your dream for my life? Jesus, what is your dream for my life? And then just continue to hold your gaze and do it for another minute. Two-minute exercise I'm asking you to do. From experience, I know some of you will laugh and some of you will cry. But Jesus has everything you need to become the man or the woman that he is calling you to become. He's got everything you need. And some of you have been living Jesus' dream for your life for a long time. And to you I say, further on and further in, there's more for us. And God will use you in ways that you've never even maybe considered, like Ananias or a Barnabas, to encourage a Saul who's in the process of becoming a Paul. Some of you have been resisting Jesus' dream for your life for a very long time. Even still, in all of your brokenness, in all of your rebellion, you need to remember that Jesus knows how to take a Saul and turn him into a Paul. Jesus knows how to do that. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Grecian Jews, but they tried to kill him. And when the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So there's another irony in this text. You remember the synagogue of the freedmen, these Grecian Jews? who killed Stephen. Now Saul, who was among these Grecian Jews, approving of the stoning and the death of Stephen, he's now standing in Stephen's place, boldly proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord, and himself becoming the target and someone they wanted to kill. All right, so main points that I'd like you to take away from this Ninth chapter, this turning point in Acts. First of all, remember this, church. Remember this disciple of Jesus. Christ is with you when you suffer. Jesus didn't say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute them? He said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He is with us. Second point, Jesus holds a vision of you and a dream of you that's probably a lot bigger and better than you can even see in yourself. I also don't want you to miss that in the power of Jesus Christ, those who were your enemy, in Jesus you can call them brother. Jesus has everything you need to become the man or woman of faith he's calling you to be. Not only does he have the vision, he's got the funds in the bank account to, to cover the checks of the dream that he has written of who you can become in him. I also want to say that not only will Jesus give you the vision, he's going to give you everything you need. And what you need is going to be bigger than what you can provide by yourself. Think about what Saul needed to become a Paul. Just in this text, he needed an encounter encounter with Jesus Christ. He needed an Ananias who, who, even though he didn't understand, would be willing to obey And call Saul his brother. He needed a Barnabas that would risk his reputation and bring him before the apostles. And then he needed brothers to stand and sisters to stand around him and protect him, lowering him in baskets over city walls so he won't be killed, sending him on the road to Caesarea and then on to Tarsus so that he would not be killed. Other faithful disciples who are protecting him. You see the community there? You see what we're called to be as a church to each other and how we're called to function that way? So one final story and then I'll be done. Um, And it's a story from my life, uh, so I apologize for that, but I think it maybe represents some of us uh, in some way stories that we have that are similar in some ways. So it's 1993. In 1993, I was 19 years old, and I went on my first mission trip to Albania with an organization called the World English Institute where I had an opportunity to teach people from a Muslim background English using the Bible. And I did that, and I loved it, and I loved the people there. I loved the weird food I had to eat. it was just after the fall of communism there, there was a window that was open that didn't last very long. But I remember the impact it had on me baptizing uh, first Muslims, my, the first time I had ever baptized Muslims into Christ, uh, just two different people. But one of them, I still re- <coughs> I've baptized a lot of people in my years in ministry. I still remember her joy as a 19-year-old. Of when she came out of that portable baptistry water, and the the excitement that she was expressing, it had a deep impact on me. Well, there was an older man on that. I thought he was ancient. He was uh, some somewhere in his 80s. I couldn't believe that he had gone on this this trip. I I don't really know much about his life other than. His name was Bill Banks, and he's from the, a, Congre- a Church of Christ in Thousand Oaks, California. And he was like 80-some years old on that mission trip to Albania. And uh, he said some things to me that I'll never forget. Um, he said, Calvin, I've been watching you. I've been watching the way you're teaching people. I've been watching the way you're interacting with people. And I just want you to know that you need to become a minister. We need more godly young people who are willing to give their very best for the Lord's church. And you need to become a preacher. And my answer basically was, no thank you. (laughs) I know how churches treat their ministers. I. I know something about the way that is and what that's like and I have no desire for that whatsoever. So really I'm 19 years old, I didn't have a clue what I wanted to do with my life. And I explored all kinds of college majors. Uh, These majors included fish and wildlife management, nursing, social work, and vocal jazz. But before I was 21 in 1995, I was in a little Church of Christ school in Austin, Texas, training for ministry. And here I am, your preacher. It was a vision for my life that at the time, I didn't even entertain it as a possibility. But Jesus is in the business of growing big and amazing things out of the little mustard seeds that are planted in our lives and in our hearts. So I'll be forever grateful that the Lord spoke through this old guy from Thousand Oaks, California. And something I didn't want to hear and I didn't even entertain as a possibility. Jesus will help you become the very best Version of yourself that he dreams of. He has everything you need to become that person. It's not easy, but he'll be there with you in it, even when they're suffering. And as you become a whole and complete human being, fully who God intended you and created you to be, you will discover that you get to be Jesus to those around you. Like Paul when he said, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. That's the call and the dream that's set before us. So they have their first persecution. And the hunter of Christians, his life is forever changed by Jesus Christ. And the persecution isn't the end of the story. It says, then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. God will get us where we need to be. So I don't know how you hear these words this morning or what strikes you um, in this message, but as always, uh, we are in the business of making disciples here and encouraging one another. So if you have a prayer need or want to put on the Lord in baptism, we give you that opportunity while we stand and sing together.